Well, this evening we come in our studies in the Ten Commandments to the Seventh Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. We'll come to see what that means, the precise definition of it, in a moment. But we saw last time, and we can say it again, that really at the heart of all the breaking of the commandments is an extreme selfishness, that we assert our right, that we are the people, and if we want something, we must have it. And God, his rules, his words cannot get in the way. We saw it lived out in a very, very excessive way in murder. That we consider somebody else's life is not worth continuing with and that we have it within ourselves to play God in that way and to kill them. And that is the most extreme version of that that we saw. In fact, when we kill people's reputations by anger or kill their honor in some way by insulting that we are actually disobeying the same commandment in doing that. Extreme nature of it may not be so, so extreme, but, uh, we nevertheless are breaking that commandment. And here in the seventh commandments, as in the sixth commandment, these commandments are personal. Indeed, the eighth commandment, taking property is personal. You're stealing someone's property. Ninth commandment, you're lying to someone. Tenth commandment again, you're coveting what belongs to someone or that very person. And so it is very personal in relationships between people that we are placing ourselves above them and placing ourselves actually above God. And we're ignoring what are his laws and statutes and placing ourselves as the ultimate authority, whether it be taking their life, taking their wife, taking their property, whatever it might be. We have something that is more important than them and that extreme selfishness, that lawlessness lies at the heart of sin and the breaking of God's commandment. So here with adultery, we can see that actually stealing somebody from somebody else. And uh, when Nathan tells the parable to David, when inviting him to think actually about his own adultery, that he makes actually a parable as much as anything about stealing, that David had stolen Bathsheba from Uriah, that he abused his power as the king, and acted there very improperly against this man whose status was much lower. Couldn't fight back, couldn't answer back. And he couldn't answer back because David had him put to death so that David's adultery could not be discovered. And I call this sermon title this a permanent problem. Permanent problem in that here, and we're looking, aren't we really, in the broadest category is sexual immorality. This is a permanent problem, not new to our culture and society, though there are particular aggravating circumstances today that somehow make that more easy to be sexually immoral. But it's ever been there, ever been in culture, ever been in society. And here it is in the word of God. We read a portion of Proverbs, didn't we, there? Matthew chapter 5. Proverbs, much, much to say. We read a portion of it. We could have read other portions of it, too which speak to that subject of immorality. Well, my first heading is actually this, the power of sexual desire. Power of sexual desire. Without being overly explicit, we would be out of place for a sermon like this and in a setting like this. But just to make a few general comments, that the urge and the desire is a very strong one. And it's meant to be. It's wrapped up in it somewhere within it, not 
The only part of it, but a big part of it, is procreation. And it guarantees that there will be children, that we will be fruitful and multiply in order to somehow make that move a little easier. Why, then, there is sexual desire. That between a man and a woman, we'll come on to that in a moment again. That here is a desire that guarantees the continuing human existence for whatever may be said out there, whatever may be promoted by way of getting rid of people. And of course, China had its uh, one uh, one child per family uh, policy for many years, come to regret it now as it's got a population shortage and you can see grief, old people getting older, nobody to care for them because the number of children has been curtailed. Well, that's that's where atheism gets you, isn't it? But we can see here that God has intended that we should be fruitful and multiply. And here is a way of helping that, that the power of sexual desire. There again, that's anyway making everybody blush, but at its best, very pleasurable, meant to be so. At its worst, very humiliating, disappointing, what is very, very worst, rape, and all that's associated with that. Or what's uh, parlance today, non-consensual acts of, of sex. So things can, as the Bible attests, and as our own experience attests, can go badly, badly wrong. And within most societies, most cultures, and kind of hear it there in the admonition given to the son about sexually moral women in that way. And there there is, raging there, the power of male sexual desire. And put it in that way, the problem of male sexual desire and the need to regulate it, not only in our culture, but in every culture. That has been an issue. It's recognized there. And there's Solomon speaking to his son to regulate his sexual desire and put before him a whole series of arguments and reasons why he should be wise and chaste. And when he marries, to be satisfied with his wife, not become dissatisfied and go a wandering in that way. Of course, there have been very unsatisfactory efforts to, or ideas, policies, I think you call them that, to regulate male sexual desire. And some of them there, I briefly mentioned polygamy. It was polygamy. And uh, some societies, cultures, when the Mormons still have it, and within Islam, you can have a few wives there, and well, they're given sort of titles derived from somewhere within the, the Quran or the Hadith to make it all okay, okay. And uh, you can get rid of those wives pretty quickly by just asserting that you divorce your wife, and that's that. So polygamy, which is around us and about us, and uh, even even in our own country, they're hidden away in certain places. And it's in the Bible, isn't it? Not that it's approved of in the Bible, but it's there in the Old Testament. And we know polygamy of uh, people like David. Well, we mentioned Solomon. He's no help to us in that, is he? And that behavior. And it's not well spoken of. Difficulties follow. We only have to think there of uh, Cana and the trouble that he has his two wives there. There's uh, Hannah and Penina. And eventually, of course, Hannah, though she's childless at that point, eventually does have a son, Samuel, and then has other children. But there's tension between the wives. And, well, well, there might there be. And here is something that uh, has no, no place in the word of God to approve it. And when you come then to the higher ethics of the New Testament, and the power of a better example beyond of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the help of the Holy Spirit, then it has no place whatsoever. So 
polygamy or related to it, uh, taking up of concubines there, having uh, various of these. And again, there were men in the Old Testament there who fell for that one and uh, who could not curb their appetites and had to fall for that. Well, we know beyond it there and very tasteless subjects to have to raise, but just briefly to mention prostitution in that way and uh, the horrors of that and how we stand opposed to all who would legalize it, liberalize it, somehow make it okay. No, not okay. Um, the women that are involved in it there, there's no joy to be had in that for the poor things, many of them drug addicts or trafficked women and, and all the rest of it. And pornography. And similarly, again, there, there's nothing good to be said about that. And again, the women that have been snared in that sort of world there, again, we, we grieve really over that and all the efforts made to make it even worse. And the violence that's in it, we understand. Well, we just feel very, very ashamed of our society that it uh, has such an interest in these things. But there it is. It's, it's mostly men, isn't it? And the male sexual desire and trying to keep a lid on that, keep a hold on that. And uh, some of the ways in which it finds an outlet that isn't very helpful. And it's all forbidden in the word of God. All forbidden in the word of God. But really what the word of God is saying to us here is that every kind of sexual stimulation or contact, any kind of, of nakedness is to be confined to marriage between a man and a woman in a state of matrimony. And that outside of that, it's classified then as sexual immorality. That, that's the nature of it. And whereas polygamy was said in the Old Testament, as I say, New Testament has higher expectations. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10, well, it's, it's, it's there to be read, isn't it? Just do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that states it there, doesn't it, just that uh, that's the, the view from heaven on sexual immorality in Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fine brimstone, which is the second death. Well, that's strong. Really, what it's doing is just listing the Ten Commandments, isn't it? And all the breakings of the Ten Commandments uh, generates the displeasure of God. So there's the power of sexual desire. There is the word of God to train it, restrain it, make it uh, there to work as it's properly intended to work within the context of marriage, not substitutes for marriage, not other kinds of uh, sexual stimulation or outlets or whatever else. These found no help, no countenance in the word of God. So the second heading, just for marriage. That is the place where it belongs, a man and a woman in a state of marriage. Marriage, now, there's an interesting one, isn't it, there, that uh, we'll say this carefully with our, our friends with us, but people enter into a one-flesh relationship, basically married, and everything that goes with marriage, apart from the fact that it hasn't been a covenant commitment that has been publicly affirmed and affirmed in the eyes of God. So many situations of that. And in a sense, 
the terminology has to catch up with the existing situation. That there is something that already is brought together, already is, in that sense, a marriage, but not recognised as such yet until it's properly covenant relationship entered into solemnly and advisedly there before God. That's what as Christians we want to do, isn't it? We want to do it before God, but also before the state, so that uh, society recognises this relationship as being a marriage. And so we're going to catch up there in some of those areas, and uh, we're glad of our friends moving in that direction. For there is this element of covenant, that this is something that really there at its ultimate, as really what it's meant to be, is to have that commitment together between a man and a woman before God and before public congregation, people. So I have witnesses at registry offices. This is a public thing. And even if you just grab somebody who's walking by, which well, it trivializes it, but nevertheless, there is this, this kind of token acceptance that you're making a public commitment and that therefore you hold yourself to the standard of that commitment and that covenant. And you pledge that covenant commitment to, to each other in the sacred bond of marriage. So there is the place of marriage. That's how it should be. That's how it's meant to be. That's how all of the things that follow what being one flesh is have their safety and their protection. That you've actually solemnly covenanted. You've made promises, exchanged vows, done it with God's as your witness and everybody else who happens to be there and was invited to that occasion. Well, well, we know that uh, much of that doesn't apply anywhere. And the breakdown of relationships in our present society, and the way in which people swap, move around, change, change again, uh, is really quite shocking, isn't it? And the wider term for such illicit, wrong relationships is sexual immorality. And the more specific term, which is used here in the Ten Commandments, that we read on in Matthew 5, would have been used there, for adultery is where there already is a marriage, where that covenant commitment has been broken. So you see, there's something more beyond when there's been that covenant commitment, that expectation there. And so the very precise legal word for that is adultery, breaking up a marriage in that way, acting against the partner to whom promises and covenant commitments have been made, and all the more so damaging, worrying and wrong when it's been done before God in his eyes and uh, solemnly entered into in that respect. For then simply it's just hypocrisy at its worst, isn't it? So sexual morality, the broad term adultery, the more specific term, but the seventh commandment is a move against all of those things, all sexual relationships, and especially where it's marriage, it's the context, that commitment, that is the framework for bringing up children. That's where children's best interests are secured. And whatever is happening there in the bedroom, well, if there is to be a child, then it's a situation, marriage, that guarantees the welfare of that child, that they'll be cared for. There is the framework that God intended, family life, the fifth commandment that we were looking at just the other week. And here is something that comes through in scripture and which society today, well, makes every attempt to dismiss and to say not so, not so. But there is actually something very fundamental in the sexual union. There is something very, very unique, exceptional and remarkable about it. 
and we deny it at our peril. And those who go about there and just move from one relationship to another um, deny it at their peril. And so we can see that Scripture, actually just turning again to 1 Corinthians to chapter 6, and holds up there before very errant behavior within the church and going with prostitutes, weren't they there? And well, Paul's got some news for them. They're establishing that fundamental union, however, temporarily with a prostitute in this case here is actually creating a one flesh relationship. You've actually, in a sense, though you haven't thought of it this way and you haven't made some great commitment to this prostitute, but you've actually married her. You've actually formed what is the basis and the essence of a one flesh relationship. First Corinthians 6 and uh, there in verses 15 and 16. And Paul asks a question. It's one of these questions, isn't it, that he asked there and which, uh, well, the answer is, they hadn't really thought this, had they? Do you not know, he says, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Something's happened. Something fundamental has happened. Some connection there between the man and the woman, the act of sexual union, which is over and above just what society today would consider such things. It's actually something quite fundamental. And so Paul has got news for those who are acting in this way that, that, that they're communing at some level there, some depth of understanding between a man and a woman in that very act that really has brought them into deep water. And where in fact that they are sharing what they are in their essence, if you will, something essential about their humanity here with a, with a harlot. And that something is also something they should be sharing with the Lord. How can they have both? And they thought they could. Well, they hadn't really thought it through, I think. And Paul's questions must come in to them like hammer blows. That how can you do this? Do you not know? Well, definitely they didn't. And there in Corinth, which culture most mirrors our own culture here in this day, and the promiscuity and sexual immorality that abounds. Well, there was news for those people. I think a news for young people, not so young people today, that there's something fundamental about that act. And however temporary, however it's, it's contracted, the man is paying for it. Horror of horrors in that way. But there's something fundamental that's happened. That union, that giving. That's that exposure of one's own sort of essential humanity, maleness or femaleness. That there is something very real, very unique, very special. It's meant to be. It's meant just to be for husband and wife in that way, not to be spread here and then spread there. Certainly not for Christians to be doing that. And Paul says it's utterly inconsistent. You've actually shared something which should only really be shared there in the context of marriage. And that essential what you're sharing Something really that you should be sharing with the Lord. Are you happy about that with, with a prostitute? And the required answer is no. And we must stop doing it. So that was the church in Corinth. So what happens when we don't do it? What happens when we ignore uh, that this is just between one man and one woman? That this ideally is, is for that situation? That uh, adultery is wrong in that way? What divorce sometimes happens, we know. We have friends here for whom that's been the sad experience. But, well, there's further story yet to be written, isn't there, on that? And one can remarry under the right circumstances. They're sure one can. 
But if one holds the ideal, well, it stays together. That covenant works. It's not broken by somebody who, who commits marital unfaithfulness there, sexual unfaithfulness. Because the whole thing is actually destructive. Because just as the relationship established in that union is fundamental, there's something very fundamental is damaged when it's abused, when it's wrongly handled, when it's acted upon as though it was something commonplace, something ordinary, something just to do on a Friday night, whatever it is, when you're half drunk or something else there. No, that is damaging. And it's undermining of character, breaks down self-respect, dignity, the dignity of other people, respect for other people, treating them as persons. It's a dehumanizing, depersonalizing event when it's regarded as something commonplace, something you just do. So I mean, that's uh, part of having fun or whatever else that it is. It's not. There's something happening there. And when one denies that and suppresses that, when people become so hardened because they're so frequently in a sexual encounter with this person, that person, any other person, then there's a hardening inside, hardening towards other people and a hardening in themselves, a callousness, a lack of humanity, a selfishness, a self-centeredness, that it makes more and more that person just what they want and their desires and meeting those desires in the best way that satisfies them. And that may treat the other person there, well, may agree to it, who knows, we won't go into all of that. But nevertheless, there's a Again, a dehumanizing of another. There is a treating of something as though it was a kind of contract there, a sort of agreement that uh, just temporarily entered into and then disbanded at the end. But it does no help to the character of the people involved. It makes them hard, it makes them cruel. It can make them actually very addicted, quite violent. That each time something more is needed, it has to go further. There's, there's a, an obsessive nature to it which again is hugely, hugely damaging, violent, violent particularly against women in that. And all the meaning of it is lost. It's become commonplace, what should be special. And the expression of that as an expression of love gets completely lost, gets broken up, gets uncoupled, and becomes simply then something that satisfies just some basic, almost animalistic desire. It's destructive of trust and commitment. Trust and commitment is there in this sort of stuff. Well, it makes it very much a situation where trust is hard to build. People don't trust each other. Prenuptial agreements get written because they think something's going to happen here and you'll be off and you want half the money. And that happens in life, doesn't it, too? That people do. They act like that. So trust and commitment, where such a culture is and where people themselves, perhaps from their backgrounds, have come into marriage with a whole trail of immorality behind them and feel very suspicious of what, what the other part they might do. Because that's the world we're in. What a wreckage that makes of what covenant commitment is. No trust, no commitment. And when some of that baggage is carried into a marriage, I don't mean to rhyme, but there it is, carried into a marriage, then that can be very harmful to that marriage. That can diminish well, the joy of the sexual relationship is always compared with a dozen others. If there's always something else that's going on there, then that's very sad, very, very sad. And it brings harm and it brings injury. There's cost involved, in other words, that the breaking of the seventh commandment, there is cost involved. And 
though our societies today, is in a deep state of denial that somehow it's okay. It's okay, it's okay, but it's not okay. And we can read really from the society that we're in that it's brought nothing but injury and harm. And when we turned, as we did there, and read that part of Proverbs, could have read other parts, well, it tells us there, and here's the warning, that if you steal somebody else's wife, look out, look out. And not excusing the husband's fury and what he might do, it's simply stating what might happen. That here is the jealousy of a husband whose wife you've committed adultery with, that's the, the thing. So Proverbs 6, as reading from verse 32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. It's destructive. It's not, not bringing hell. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased through though he give many gifts. That can be the result And how many... Uh, crimes of passion there are, how many people have acted against an unfaithful partner or something, well, totally wrongly. But here the scripture is saying that that fury, that vengeance, that, that desire there were well, the occasioning factor was actually the adultery. And we can't excuse the act of violence that might follow, and the acid attacks and the, the honor killings and the rest of it there, particularly in Islamic and other Asian cultures. It's uh, nevertheless... That's where it comes from. This is something very fundamental, breaking down of trust and commitment and purity that has been uh, brought into a family and the honour that or dishonour that it's brought. So it's just for marriage. This avoids all of this, just for marriage, to be kept and confined there with its proper context and where it has been then sealed, as it were, by making solemn pledges before God and before society in general, then we've reached what God here is looking for from us. My third heading, recent developments. Recent developments. I'm not going to be happy. Developments either, are they? Well, they've actually made sexual immorality easier. They've actually made it legally easier, medically, surgically easier. Well, easier in one sense that uh, uh, you can carry on, as it were, in your immorality. It takes the risk out of your immorality, if you like, but it leaves behind it, well, all that we've already just described in its train. That is, isn't cost-free. This is not without price. So we can see how really what's happened is the, the act of sex and place of marriage, and indeed the, the place of love within sex and within marriage has been sort of broken up so that you can now compartmentalize. You can have sex without love. You can have sex without marriage. And so this has been society's contribution over the last 50 or so years. And what damaging, damaging effects it has had upon us. Well, we've seen, again, I'm not going to dwell on these, going to state really what you already know, I'm sure, that contraception has enabled that to happen. It was probably always in the mind of those who moved these things and brought these things into society that you can now have the act of sex and it's more, not entirely, but it's more risk-free, that you are free of risk of having a child. So the need for a marriage, need for a committed relationship in which a child, if born, if conceived, will be probably looked after. Well, you've reduced the risk now, and that makes immorality easier to do. 
you you can do it and not be thinking, oh, what if? What if I become pregnant? Reduce the chances of it. And then as well, when you add in the morning after pill, well, really, now this has just made it easier again. Easier at least uh, for those who are committing immorality, so they think. And of course, abortion. Well, which is like, I'll say it in these terms, the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution, if your risk goes bad on you, if uh, your act of sex there, nope, the promise broke down, the contraception failed, or you're drunk, or whatever it was, well, there's always the ultimate solution to sort it out for you. Have an abortion, get rid of the child, then move on and carry on. And so we have seen, haven't we, there, and well, the Christian Institute, is it nine million uh, unborn children died since the 1967 Abortion Act was passed, nine million. That's a lot of, that's a lot of lives, isn't it, friends? That's a lot, a lot of children happening out there, isn't it? Happening quietly, unobtrusively, and happening. All those children being cast out of the womb should have been the safest place on earth for them. No. It's the most dangerous place on earth for them in societies like ours. And so there is uh, abortion as the backstop. If other things have failed, you've just been careless and forgetful. Well, never mind. We can sort it there. And you can go on having your, your sexual life, have another abortion if you need. I mean, three or four of the things. Some have. Some reports, don't they? It has not been a happy experience, not for their conscience at all. So in order to soothe the conscience, the child has been dehumanized and given other names, the products of conception. Or is that not the ultimate Orwellian language? The products of conception as a child, actually. And the language is done to sort of ease the conscience and sort of dehumanize the child. So that's all okay. And that's what they're trying to do. Is say, it's okay. Joy at immorality. It's cost-free. You'll be fine. And uh, you don't have to think of this as a child. It's not. It's not a life. And uh, we believe conception begins. Well, life begins at conception. None of that. So you dehumanize the child and you medicalize basically murder, don't you? You Just make it into a a necessary, surgical, medicalized uh, procedure. Doctors sign. Don't be doing that soon, will they, if the liberalization goes apace? And so there it is. And then, of course, you've got divorce. That's another way to be able to continue on if you've wearied there, if your wife, your husband, whatever it is, then you can put your marriage to death. You can uh, abort it. You can finish it, terminate it. And with divorce becoming easier, no fault divorce, and well, it was easy enough anyway, just had to cite unreasonable behavior on the part of the other uh, partner. And most courts would say, oh, that's it then. Marriage is over, sign it off and, and finish it. With the ease with which that can be done, then it actually makes sexual morality easier. So had we read all in Matthew 5, it would have been saying, well, actually, if that was the nature of the divorce, if that was the grounds of it, there were no grounds at all. Technically, now, news for the people there, you're committing adultery if you remarry. You haven't properly finished. You haven't had a valid and a reason to, to divorce. And so there's a shock or two for a number of people out there. So that's our society today here in the West, here in this country. And, well, has it brought good? No, it hasn't, has it? And the misery and the harm and the damage, well, we mentioned the unborn, that's obvious, isn't it, there? But you can think, too, of the broken homes there are, marriages that have broken down, the sadness that's followed, children 
angry, embittered, themselves never wanting to marry, not commit, and all that they, they feel in that. And that sadness that continues with them, perhaps some of them all their life, adopted children who, oh, it's just grievous, isn't it, sometimes there to see that they never, never become happy, do they, despite the most loving of homes that they have. And Christians who do their most to try to provide what, what wasn't there, but somehow what wasn't there just can never be made up for. And one can see that all of this immorality, putting it like that, all of this liberalisation, well, that's trying to give it a posh word, isn't it? No, it's immorality. Has left sadness, brokenness, left violence, left harm, left death in its train. Recent developments, but really they've left our nation in a sorry, sorry state. Well, my final heading, our response. Our response. Well, how we must pray. How we must pray. And pray for young people. Pray for them, how many of them we know from our own experience and from our own children and their friends that so many of them come from broken homes. So many of them have had that sadness there. And as young people themselves are more and more from a broken background, and they've been divorced from the Bible. They've had a broken upbringing in that way that there's been no Bible for them. That hasn't been taught because their parents have been just too busy doing something else. The Bible's had no place in their thinking. And so they've never known anything better. They've never known that there's something wholesome, something good, an alternative, something so much richer, so much more meaningful, so much more protective of the dignity of each of the parties in that relationship. And so we need to pray. Pray what's taught in schools where our children are victims. Let's say that, the victims of sex education. That's doing them no help. That's only legitimating, well, not us between men and women, is it just, but any kind of relationship, any kind of sexual stimulation. If it feels good, you do it. It's all right. There's no sanction. There's no no to it. So we pray. Internet, we've not spoken about that, but we could, couldn't we, and speak at length on its damage and the dangers of it and social media and all the temptations there, men, women displaying themselves there for people to see. Pray for marriages, families, and Christian Institute meeting in the week. Yeah, pray for marriages, strong marriages. Pray for our friends getting married, strong marriages. That this will be something that others will look to. So yes, marriage works. Yes, it does. And that people can commit together. And they're not miserable and unhappy, as the world will tell you. Oh, tedious relationship. We'll get out of it, move on. When well, no, we pray for marriages, we pray for the unborn. Pray for their protection. Pray that this awful abortion culture, this cheap treatment of life will end and that we'll own our parts, own our sins. No colonialism here. We'll put that one side, friends. This, this is grievous, isn't it? Nine million lives lost and they can all be counted and accounted for in that way. Grievous. We pray for the Christian Institute. We pray for loved ones. Pray for those who are working whatever level they are in schools or government and in the advice they give uh, to try to bring us towards a healthy consideration of the seventh commandment. Oh, and pray for our culture, that God will move in power. Pray that he's come upon these corrupt Corinthian kind of cultures, our culture, all the horror that there is out there, the bad examples, the poor practice, the sad people. I think particularly women folk who, who suffer under the misery 
uh, of all of this. Well, we pray that God will will preserve us, married folk, keep our marriages there as an example to others we trust, we hope they will be. But that God will work to repair the damage, to make the children happy, to give them safety and protection, the proper system and relationship there of a husband and wife, a mother and a father. And that's yet God may rescue, yes, rescue our society, our culture, from this ultimately self-destructiveness. Whenever we go against the commandments of God, it's an act of wanton self-destruction. Whenever we assert ourselves in place of God's law, it's an act of self-destruction. And sadly, of course, it also is an act that destroys other lives too. And so God wisely has given us the commandments he has for our good in the end, and that we may prosper as people, being fruitful, growing in Christian character, there we leave our consideration of the Seventh Commandment. In a few weeks' time, we'll pick up the act of stealing. That stealing, well, the Seventh Commandment is, is an act of stealing, isn't it? When you commit adultery, it's stealing somebody else. Or even in a relationship outside of marriage, young people, whatever, we're perhaps stealing somebody's future wife or future husband. You're, you're getting in the way, destroying something that could have flourished in the future. So in a way, you're stealing from the future future marriage and future hopes. And so there is much to ponder there, isn't there? And much for us to wrestle with in our culture and pray that God will have mercy upon our nation.